Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your solo host for today's episode, Robbie Martin. Now, some of you may be overloaded with Ukraine information, Ukraine news, Ukraine commentary. But some of the content of today's episode is going to be about Ukraine from a slightly different angle than we've already covered. Um, I'm going to be covering the sort of the mystery of U.S. biological labs, biodefense labs, um, potential bioweapons labs that exist in Ukraine that have relationships with the U.S. government. I'm also going to talk about how all the war think tanks are pivoting pretty much all unanimously in an aggressive formation towards Russia. Not very surprising at all. Most of the Washington, D.C. think tank establishment is hawkish, uh, you know, wants to put more heat on Russia. It's just a matter of which priorities and timelines they individually have or these different factions seem to have. But right now, this all, this seems like it's an opportunity for everybody to basically say that Biden is being too weak. He needs to be more hawkish, more harsh, and, you know, same as always. That split that so-called split in the neocon consensus between sort of the populist wing of hawks and the more neoliberal hawks seems to be pretty much non-existent right now. There's a lot of unity between those two camps, and that's uh, fairly scary. But I'm going to spend probably half the episode talking about this new 60-minute special on Havana Syndrome and how for the first time... They played a sound effect of what they claim was a recording one of the victims of Havana Syndrome made of the apparent Havana weapon, the sound weapon sound itself. Um, Now, I don't necessarily believe in Havana Syndrome. I don't even know if it's some kind of sound weapon, if it actually does exist. So I'm just sort of speculating when I say that. But 60 Minutes did play a recording of the alleged sound effect of what Havana sounds like. Like if you're in the pathway, allegedly, of this weapon, whatever it is, it sounds like this. And they played the sound effect on 60 Minutes. So as someone who comes from a sound design, audio engineering, electronic music background myself, I thought it would be interesting to reach out to other sound designers, um, sound recordists, Uh, electronic musicians who are familiar with synthesizers and how to synthesize sounds or people who know how to synthesize sounds off of a computer software instrument. I thought it'd be interesting to reach out to people like that to get their opinion on not even really the politics of Havana Syndrome, but just from an audio engineering, audio framework, what is just their gut reaction to it, to the sound? And also, what do they think the sound is? Is it synthetic? Does it sound natural to them? Um, even some of the people who responded to this inquiry I put out actually said what, how they think that the sound could be created that they played on 60 minutes. Yeah. A whole lot of stuff to unpack in this episode, but it's going to be a solo one, but I just wanted to give a shout out to our Patreon subscribers out there. You guys are awesome. I don't know how I could be doing this amount of research and work without your support. A bunch of the the Patreon subscription funds um, have gone back into the research project that has been the smallpox project. Um, Just like previous to that, it was the Masonic history project, which is just is on hiatus right now. In case anyone's wondering, 
it became kind of a behemoth of a project that I felt um, I should just take a step back from until I have the proper amount of energy and focus to to continue it. Um, I have outlines pretty much for the entire rest of the series, so it's not something that I'm going to, um, you know, wait too long to pick back up on from. So if you're a fan of the Masonic History series and you're a Patreon subscriber and wondering when that's going to come back, I would say probably midsummer uh, will be the next episode of that. But for now, um, I'm continuing this smallpox series because the story is pretty much almost complete. We just released part four of that series. And I just, I had this strong urge to get it out there because I just started reading a little bit about it. And um, I don't know, I just felt it was a really interesting story that almost nobody knows about or remembers. Even people who are, you know, very cognizant of the news back in uh, post 9-11 era, the Bush era. But I'm going to start with this interesting bit of news that I saw right when Ukraine got invaded, maybe within the first two days. Probably one of the more bizarre things that happened that seemed like, oh my God, like, yeah, Chernobyl's in in Ukraine. There was news coming out saying that Russian soldiers were trying to seize the Chernobyl nuclear disaster site. I don't know if that ended up being another one of those fake viral news stories. It probably was, actually, because it sounds pretty ridiculous. But there's a lot of other nuclear um, infrastructure in Ukraine. There's a few nuclear power plants. There's other nuclear sites like that. You know, it begs the question, what happens when a modern country with nuclear power plants gets bombed or gets involved in a war with like a full military? You know, a quote-unquote hybrid war or clandestine war is bad enough with that kind of infrastructure. We already saw what happened to a major Ukrainian airport. It was kind of actually weird to see such a modern-looking airport get that obliterated by war. We're just not used to seeing imagery like that, where an airport that modern, it just looks like Swiss cheese with bullet holes and munitions, just the whole thing's destroyed. But what I'm saying is the infrastructure in Ukraine, there's a lot of modern things in it. There's not just nuclear facilities. There are also very sophisticated, very secure biodefense labs labs that have biodefense projects happening in them in Ukraine with the participation of the U.S. Defense Department. Now, let me be a little more clear about this. Somebody noticed on Twitter, not sure who this user is, but this was a very interesting find um, that I, this is how I started on going down this rabbit hole. A, a user on Twitter named Diliana Gaitanziva tweeted, The U.S. Embassy in Ukraine has just deleted from its website all documents about 11 Pentagon-funded biolaboratories in Ukraine. I have published all these documents, now deleted by the embassy here and in the thread below. Now, she posts um, a screenshot from the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, their website, and uh, she shows that they have fact sheets of all the different laboratories that are participating in what they call a biological threat reduction program. The U.S. Department of Defense's biological threat reduction program collaborates with partner countries to counter the threat of outbreaks of world's most dangerous infectious diseases. They're talking about collaborating with Ukraine. The program accomplishes its bio-threat reduction mission through development of a bio-risk management culture, international research partnerships, and partner capacity for enhanced 
biosecurity, biosafety, and, and biosurveillance measures. The Biological Threat Reduction Program's priorities in Ukraine are to consolidate and secure pathogens and toxins, a security concern, and to continue to ensure Ukraine can detect and report outbreaks caused by dangerous pathogens before they pose security or stability threats. Now, it says that President Zelensky visited a sanitary epidemiological department of the medical command of the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, which seem like they're part of this threat reduction program, somehow working with the Pentagon on this. Now, it's odd. Until I read this tweet, I just had no idea that the Ukrainian government had over 11 biological laboratories that deal with dangerous pathogens in the country some of whom work with the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense. That was complete news to me. Now, why is this even interesting news at all, other than my obsession with biological weapons? Well, the reason why it's newsworthy is because this Twitter user noticed that the U.S. Embassy had deleted from their website just simple fact sheets about these 11 Pentagon-funded biolaboratories. Why did they do that? Well, it's not really clear. I'm looking at the different fact sheets, and it just seems to be the mere fact that these are openly funded by the U.S. Department of Defense is something that this embassy wants to hide, even though this Twitter user has taken screenshots of pretty much every fact sheet they deleted, but they just very matter-of-factly say that they are funded by the Department of Defense. Nothing special, really. So what are they trying to hide? Why would they be trying to hide this? They're obviously trying to hide this. U.S. government is. Why? Why would they be trying to hide this right now while Russian military is essentially invading Ukraine? What could be the reason, the impetus for trying to hide this right now? Well, one of the reasons could be that people in the United States, specifically someone as part of the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, named Robert Pope. The Cooperative Threat Reduction Program is a 30-year-old Defense Department program that has helped secure the Soviet Union's weapons of mass destruction and redirect former bioweapons facilities and scientists towards peaceful endeavors. According to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, this is where this article is published. But this is interesting. So this could explain why these fact sheets were deleted from the Ukrainian embassy's website. Listen to this. The Russian invasion of Ukraine may put at risk a network of U.S.-linked labs in Ukraine that work with dangerous pathogens, said Robert Pope, the director of the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. The labs in Ukraine are not bioweapons facilities. The U.S. government maintains that they are public and animal health labs operated by host countries. Although a long-running Russian disinformation campaign has painted a picture of U.S. military labs in Ukraine, Georgia and other former Soviet republics involved in bioweapons or risky research, Pope said the labs conduct peaceful scientific research and disease surveillance. Outside experts have also said Pope's program is not a covert biological weapons operation. While the United States isn't maintaining bioweapons facilities, Pope said, war could put pathogen collection in Ukraine at risk. I would say from every facility that we have worked with them in, we have confidence that as long as the electrical power is turned on and the people we have are trained, are present at the facility, the biosafety officers, that these pathogens are safe and secure to international standards, Pope said. 
Should these facilities be damaged by conflict, that could change. So this is basically saying that because Russia is bombing Ukraine, because Russia is announcing sort of this open military incursion into Ukraine, that these bio labs are now under threat. Now, if any of these biolabs facilities get damaged, he's basically saying that some of these pathogens could get released. Well, okay, there's no bioweapons being made here, he says. Well, what kind of pathogens, what kind of dangerous pathogens are they working with? Well, that's not clear. What's really the difference between, you know, a secret biological weapons program and, you know, a military-sponsored program that's that scientists trying to modify or work with deadly pathogens. I mean, there's a very fine line between the two. I hope this is making sense to people that biodefense is virtually indistinguishable from biological weapons manufacturing and development. This is why, as this article alleges, Kremlin disinformation accused some of these labs in Ukraine and labs elsewhere in Eastern Europe of making deadly pathogens as part of some kind of biological weapons program for the U.S. government. But this article says that it's like Kremlin disinformation, that the Kremlin spread around disinformation to basically smear these labs doing innocent scientific research as bioweapons labs. And this is not a new thing. This has been going on for a long time. I couldn't find any report specifically about Russia claiming any of these labs in Ukraine were biological weapons facilities, but I did find a segment from Al Jazeera where Russia is claiming that a lab there that's similarly sponsored, that's sponsored exactly the same way uh, by the Department of Defense as some of these other labs in Ukraine are. And listen to this: what this segment says. We were shown inside Georgia's Luga Laboratory, which detects and prevents the spread of dangerous diseases. But pro-Kremlin media claim it spreads disease, experimenting on humans with cancer, the Zika virus, killer mosquitoes, and plagues of stink bugs. I asked the laboratory's director whether there was any truth to these narratives. But we are not making Zika virus in this laboratory. The killer mosquitoes? But the, but the laboratory is, uh, the, the level of the laboratory is so high that we can diagnose here the Zika, Ebola, Crimea, Congo, and many, many infection diseases. No killer but mosquitoes coming But we are not making here. these viruses here. No marmorated stink bug coming from the Luga laboratory? What? The marmorated stink bug. No, <laughs> no, no. I'm not a scientist, but what I have been seeing here suggests that this laboratory is exactly what the Georgian government says it is. How is this fucking guy able to decide that? He's just getting PR from the lab and he's just like, yep, totally above board. The rush is lying. Fucking liars and shit's fine. I'm in the lab in a lab coat on camera. Can't you see me? I know what I'm talking about. Even though I'm not a scientist at all. I mean, Jesus Christ. The Russian claims that what's going on at the Luger lab is far more sinister haven't been supported by any hard evidence. Well, it's a U.S. Defense Department-sponsored lab. Don't, doesn't the U.S. Department of Defense like have the right to just make things completely classified? So how do you get hard evidence for things unless it's like leaked classified documents? 
Facebook investigators made the startling claim that Georgia's governing party had adopted Russian-style disinformation to discredit its opponents. Facebook shut down dozens of fake news accounts and pages. Government officials deny the allegations, but fact-checking organizations say political groups in Georgia increasingly employ such tactics. More than 100 Facebook pages connected to far-right organizations spread anti-Western narratives. Yeah. And, they're in, and they're in Georgian language. Yes, in Georgia. The Alliance of Patriots Party, which came third in elections... I mean, okay, that took a little bit of a left turn. Sorry, I played so long of that clip. Um, I mean, basically, that does sort of dovetail into the fact that Georgia itself was sort of the original flashpoint in the new Cold War. And American policymakers here tried to basically accuse Russia of invading Georgia during that time period. Now, what really happened there? Well, Saakashvili, the guy who was running Georgia at the time, was like basically an American puppet. And it did seem like something was done to try to bait Russia into making some kind of maneuver. Could this new Ukraine flare up, this new military incursion by russia be another example of that where somehow they've been baited into doing something that was bad for their own interest long term it's possible i still think that that's very possible but let me give you a little bit more context for why this you know why these things were deleted from this website why russia probably does have reason to think that the u.s government is making biological weapons in labs that are less regulated by the international community that aren't inside the United States, so they don't have to abide by our laws. It makes perfect sense why Russia would accuse the U.S. government of possibly doing weapons experiments at these labs. Now, of course, Gumby drew my attention to this Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist article, where this guy is basically worrying about the infrastructure in Ukraine being damaged and these pathogens being let loose. He kind of brushes that possibility aside. He doesn't think that the Russians are going to purposely shoot a missile at any of these labs. It says, Pope doesn't believe the Russians will deliberately aim weapons at the labs during the invasion. I think the Russians know enough about the kinds of pathogens that are stored in biological research laboratories that I don't think they would deliberately target a laboratory, Pope said. But what I do have concerns about is that they would be accidentally damaged during this Russian invasion. Okay. Well, that seems, I mean, that seems reasonable enough. However, this is another, this is, I think, the most important part of what he says. The invasion could also provide fodder for the new disinformation narratives around the labs, Pope feared. The Russians, he said, could, quote, potentially go to one of these facilities and fabricate something that they call evidence of nefarious activity at the facility, unquote. And this is where it gets even crazier. And this is, I, I think, what Gumby pointed out specifically on Twitter, where I was just like, okay, this is fucking really sus. Pope continues to say, there is no place that still has any of the infrastructure for researching or producing biological weapons. But scientists being scientists, it wouldn't surprise me if some of these strain collections in some of these laboratories still have pathogen strains that go all the way back to the origins of that program. And he means our biological weapons program. So he's basically saying that there aren't, there's no chance whatsoever that any of these labs are doing anything nefarious because we don't have a biological weapons program. But it wouldn't surprise me if somehow in their freezer somewhere, 
they're storing like deadly pathogens like accidentally that go back to this program when it was still around and that Russia could just find something in those freezers and misconstrue it as like a current developed thing. I mean, that's a pretty wide net for making excuses for if like something is found in those labs. So that's a really odd thing being put out there in general, I think. You know, there's all these labs here. If Russia gets access to them, they're going to try to use it as a propaganda point against us. But regardless if they find some shit or not on us, it's just Russian disinformation. We have to just assume it is. There's no way it's real. You know, he's basically saying that they could walk away with something that could look like hard evidence, like an actual pathogen. Now, I'm going to throw a link in the description for this episode uh, to all of those fact sheets that were pulled off the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine's uh, website, showing um, all the different 11 Pentagon-sponsored biolaboratories in Ukraine. I mean, I guess one of the strange, the inexplicable things about it is why would they do that? Do they think that Russia didn't already see that? I mean, Russia already knows all that shit. So it seems like they did it to try, maybe try to stop bad press or stop the press from looking into it. And it seems to have worked so far because this story, I'm surprised, is not gaining very much traction in general from what I've seen. But it's, it's quite a mystery and I think it deserves a deeper look. What is actually going on in these Eastern European countries running these biodefense laboratories sponsored by Pentagon research projects. What are they actually doing? Maybe that's playing into why Russia is getting more and more itchy under the trigger finger over the situation. You know, maybe it's not just the nukes that's uh, considered the, you know, one of the the major issues here that, that made Putin freak out. Maybe it's also this stuff and it's just barely being talked about. I, I honestly have no idea. That's speculation, but I think it could be playing a bigger role here than we realize. Biological weapons and the idea of biodefense and Russia's apparent expertise on biological weapons was a very, very big deal. As you know now from if you've listened to some of those smallpox episodes that I did, or just during the Clinton era, the Cobra event, all these spy fiction, Tom Clancy just always involves Russia and rogue scientists from Russia and bioweapons. I mean, this is just a theme that just came up over and over and over again. So I think on some level, that's maybe playing a role here. It's just hard to say how big of a role. Perfect way to segue to some of our favorite Russia hawks of all on this program, the Kagan family. Ever since making a very heavy agenda and sort of never releasing a very heavy agenda for, which I started making and I never actually ended up releasing. I've been covering the Kagan family on and off and still tracking them. Uh, if you don't know who the Kagan family is, they play a very big role in American society and policymaking, equally as big as, I would say, the Clinton family or trying to think of another family. Um, if we were thinking like families of policymakers, uh, dynastic forces in this country, the Bush family. I would say the Kagan family have played a very, very large role, maybe even as large of a role as both of those families, but have been mostly underground in terms of, in terms of how much publicity they get. They're very influential in policymaking circles. Robert Kagan was the co-founder of the Project for the New American Century, one of the most infamous neoconservative think tanks of all time. Fred Kagan, his brother is considered one of the most brilliant 
foreign policy minds inside D.C. He speaks and reads and writes fluent Russian. He knows Russian military, Soviet military history better than any other think tanker in D.C. Robert Kagan's wife, Victoria Newland, was the U.S. ambassador to NATO for a fairly long time during one of NATO's biggest growth periods, and she became instrumental in the Euromaidan coup and replacement government in Ukraine back in 2014. Kimberly Kagan, the wife of Fred Kagan, runs a think tank out of Washington, D.C. called the Institute for the Study of War. That is one of the most influential and integral war strategy, military strategy think tanks in Washington, D.C. It's almost entirely sponsored by U.S. defense contractors. General David Betraeus has a high-up executive role at this think tank. General Jack Keane also has a high-up role at this think tank. Sagar Anjedi of the Hill Rising or Breaking Points, who's considered a right populist, used to write for this think tank. It does nothing but encourage war. It's been very useful to people who, you know, write about war and other think tanks as well because they use a lot of their data. So Institute for the Study of War is very plugged in and very influential to other think tanks as well. They play a big role in the think tank circuit. And the only other member of the family I haven't mentioned yet is Donald Kagan. Now, Donald Kagan, the patriarch of the family, a Lithuanian Jewish immigrant, he didn't have a chance to speak recently on what's happening in Ukraine because he passed away. Donald Kagan is dead. One half of the duo who wanted to advocate for U.S. troops to be put into Palestinian territories as a response to 9-11, to clean them out, Donald Kagan, has died. Unfortunately, his son, Fred Kagan, is still alive. The other half of that duo who advocated for sending in U.S. troops to clean out Palestinian territories. But I'm going to sort of just go through. We haven't heard from the Kagans for a while. They, you know, We knew Victoria Newland was inside the administration, but we barely heard from her since she's been inside the Biden administration. We've heard from Robert Kagan a little bit on and off. Um, he wrote a book you know, since I last put out a very heavy Agenda 3 called When the Jungle Grows Back, all about his theory about how basically if the U.S. withdraws from its obligations as basically the world's police force, then the quote-unquote jungle, you know, less international order, rules-abiding nations will eventually take over and throw their weight around because, you know, the U.S. is so nice when it comes to international law and really follows things and, you know, really is really respectful of it, according to Robert Kagan. But let's start with someone who actually is in the administration, Victoria Newland. What has she been saying since the invasion? Well, I haven't been able to find anything that she's said since the invasion. She must be lying low and running numbers and crunching game theory behind the scenes. But leading up to this, I thought she's had some very interesting things to say. This is what she said in very early February 2022. I'm going to play you some of this appearance on Sky News. Well, Under Secretary of State, thank you very much for talking um, to Sky News. Can I first of all ask you uh, about some perspective? Because you've, as a diplomat, followed and worked on Ukraine for, for many years under several presidencies. Just put this moment in context for us. How serious is it? 
How worried should, are you and how worried should we be? Well, Mark, it's extremely worrying. You know, a nation does not deploy 100,000 troops on the border of another nation and put its saboteurs inside the country uh, without some malign and aggressive intent. Uh, that is a very expensive and difficult and dangerous operation. So why now? And why now particularly when Russia itself has only half its population vaccinated, when Russians care about taking care of COVID and taking care of their schools and their hospitals and their infrastructure. It makes no sense. Let's talk, you talk about uh, operations within Ukraine. We've heard today that this idea of a false flag operation, uh, Russia looking for a pretext to war. They want an excuse to invade, so you say. This is a, a great part in the in the interview where just to hear someone like Victoria Nuland using terminology that classically only Alex Jones used to say, you know, but maybe it's a net benefit. Maybe just Alex Jones popularizing that term. Maybe that actually has been a net benefit in the sense that people just understand what it means more. So just take a listen to her just casually throwing that term around. Well, this is straight out of the Russian playbook to try to, uh, through sabotage operations, through false flag operations, through blaming the other guy uh, to create that pretext, to give an excuse to go in, or to make it look like the Ukrainians were the aggressors when in fact the first aggression was perhaps even done by Russians against Russians to blame the Ukrainians. So it's all very dangerous and the way they operate is very non-transparent. We've had a week of diplomacy. It appears to have gone nowhere. I mean, it's really interesting just to hear the full scope of what she's saying, because she's basically alluding to how, like, nothing you see on the surface can be trusted for what it is. Anything Russia says could be some kind of weird smoke and mirrors thing happening. It's essentially what she's saying. That's a very dangerous, slippery slope to go down, because it kind of ties back to what I was saying earlier. Is there some utility for the West to put out this climate of like so much disinformation that you don't even know what to trust anymore with anything. Like a full scorched earth, you know, like if you're looking at the information war as a battlefield, you know, the classic concept of scorched earth is, you know, all the armies burn their tanks and all their equipment, all their food and like the land so that like no one, you know, the armies can't use it or whatever. But what do you do with scorched earth and an information war? Or maybe it's just to make it seem like nothing the Russians say or do can be trusted at all. Everything could be the opposite of what it seems. Up is down, black is white. Continuing with her interview. Mark, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I would say that uh, in the first instance, the Russians came to the table in the U.S.-Russia format, in the NATO-Russia Council format and at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe where the Ukrainians also sit and they had a chance to uh, hear from all of us and particularly at NATO they heard a unified message from 30 allies including the UK saying let's resolve any issues through diplomacy not through war nobody needs that now. But the, the Russians at the OSCE in Vienna said, and I'm quoting it, they said, if we don't hear constructive response to our proposals within a reasonable time frame, we'll take necessary measures to ensure strategic balance and eliminate unacceptable threats to our national security. They want to counter what they see as a Western aggression on, in the, on the Eastern Front of Europe. 
Again, Mark, we put, the U.S. did, NATO did, OSCE partners did, put concrete ideas on the table to address a significant number of the Russians' concerns. We are offering greater military transparency and restraint as long as it's reciprocal. Our exercises can get smaller if theirs do. We have long wanted to talk about intermediate nuclear range uh, missiles in Europe and, and short range. The, the Russians are now coming and saying, let's talk. So let's have another round and really get down to brass tacks. If these are the issues they're concerned about, we should solve them through diplomacy. I mean, she's basically acting, I think, very different than she was when she was in the Obama administration or even after. I mean, she's acting as if the U.S. now was like the, I mean, this kind of is sort of like the cucked U.S. narrative that I feel like this is her version of it. It's like, no, we were the ones who were like, yeah, let's talk this out. We we understand your concerns. We want to hear them all. Let's let's hash something out. We want to be diplomatic about this. And she's acting like Russia is just acting as if we're being, you know, we're not doing that. That they're sort of gaslighting. Now that creates an interesting problem because it's like, well, which reality is actually true here? I mean, is the U.S. doing something to bait Russia and then just acting calm as a cucumber on the surface? while like poking them doing something really crazy that we're that, that like Russia can't even talk about. I mean, I, I it just I don't know. Let's go with more Victoria Newland here. Not through military blackmail. Is America prepared to go to war with Russia if it invades Ukraine? What we are talking about here is helping the Ukrainians to defend themselves and preparing massive consequences, economic and political, for Moscow if it uh, walks away from the diplomatic table. Basically, her line is very, very much the same as it was during the Obama administration, except more leaning in the direction of very harsh sanctions. But they're not willing to say anything more than helping the Ukrainians defend themselves. But even the, during the Obama administration, Obama did not sign that bill. He wouldn't sign that into law. He waited for the next administration to do it. So she's at least getting that, and she's able to say that very openly and comfortably. There's no longer a debate about that, which there was when I made a very heavy agenda part two. There was still a debate on if Ukrainians should be getting $300 million weapon supplemental packets. Now there's no longer debate. It's just considered, yeah, of course we should do that. But that's as far as she's willing to go in terms of the official administration's stance on, are we willing to go to war with Russia over this? And we all have to do that. We can't allow countries to change international borders by force. We'll have a free-for-all out there in the world. But President Putin already did that. He did that in Crimea. And, he did. And, and <laughs> I mean, that's just a funny thing to me because it's like, yeah, it is true that Russia has changed borders. And, but I mean, overtly so. But that's like really the only, like, Putin has like not nearly caused nearly as much carnage as we have outside of his country's borders. We have. But yet we haven't like overtly changed borders. We've sort of made it seem like these countries keep their autonomy, you know, after we fucking you know, rain hellfire down on them. It's just a funny distinction, specific distinction that I think is very strategic rhetoric to use. He did. President he Obama at the time effectively ignored him. So 
we know from history that sanctions don't tend to work. So, you know, if they do invade, what then? That question hasn't been answered. What will you, America, do if Russia goes ahead and invades well, beyond for, sanctions? First of all, Mark, to your premise, uh, I was involved in the uh, preparation and implementation of consequences for Russia. At the beginning of that, I would remind you, it looked like Moscow and its proxies were going to go all the way to Kiev. And they stopped far short of that. Now, they did grab Crimea, obviously, which was a tragedy for Ukraine and international stability. What we're preparing this time is far more severe and painful for Russia economically in terms of its potential complete economic isolation from the global financial system as well as its political isolation. And again, why do the Russian people need that now? She, she could tell that she's even frustrated. I mean, she's acting like it's going to be far more severe, you know, as if this is going to have some kind of, it's going to move the needle a little bit, but it's like, you could tell she's even frustrated. Obviously, she wants it to be. She she wants the Ukrainians probably to have like even crazier weapons than they have. But I noticed that she's a little better on her feet when it comes to answering these questions. She's better at at smoothing out her answers to sort of dodge having to answer certain things specifically. Which is to be building back better and dealing with COVID. Building back better. Points on that. The fuck. You talk about you've talked about the Russian people quite a lot, but you're assuming. <laughs> Understandably, I guess that the Russian people will will see your point of view and not President Putin's. But but why is it? Why do you assume that? Because there is an argument that actually they will blame the Russian people will blame you for crippling sanctions. They won't blame their own leader. They'll blame the West. Again, this is a completely created conflict of the Kremlin's making. Ukraine poses no so threat to Russia. NATO poses no threat to Russia. They ought to be, the leadership of that country ought to be focusing on internal issues, not provoking a conflict. So if we have to impose consequences, they will be purely brought by the leadership of Russia. But in, in diplomacy, you need to see things from the other side's point Absolutely. of view, don't you? So, so, okay, so let's take their side, yes. their, their point of view yes. for, for a moment. They see NATO... <gasps> not as a oh, great. organization, but as an aggressive organization. They look at Libya, they look at the Balkans, and they see NATO as being on the offensive. And they see that as well in Ukraine. They see Western forces penetrating what they see as a buffer zone between them and the West. Do, do you, do you, can you understand that point of view? NATO is a defensive military alliance designed to defend the interest and the territory of its members. It has not deployed without a UN Security Council resolution in the past. Well, it did go into the Balkans, but it was uh, partly as a result of a unified view of its members that that was a direct threat to our security in Europe. NATO has no gripes with Russia unless Russia is coming for us. We've lived side by side since the end of the Cold War, some 30 years. In fact, NATO never even put its own forces in the new member states until after Russia invaded Ukraine and Donbass. Fascinating thing that she just said straight up, that, Ru that NATO is not coming for Russia unless Russia comes for us. But what happens when the U.S., let's say NATO, the rest of these NATO countries are not really interested in gunning for Russia, because some of the, them probably really aren't. They've probably just sort of been dragged into this by us to some extent. So why, I mean, 
what w- so the US if it's going after Russia then it would only be natural for Russia to sort of go back at us in some way so what she's saying is it's very ridiculous actually because automatically then she's admitting here that NATO does have impetus to go after Russia if Russia's going after us which they already are and they have been we haven't sat side by side as these friendly partners since the end of the Cold War, she's claiming. There, there's been underlying uh, back and forth shenanigans happening the whole time. So kind of in theory, what she could be admitting here is that NATO has been orienting towards Russia because simply because it's been going after the U.S. So Russia has created and gotten exactly the result that it says it doesn't want because of its own aggressive actions. So it needs to think about that before it moves this time. Wow. That Russia's own paranoia over NATO has created this self-fulfilling prophecy of NATO coming after them. That is pretty amazing. Pretty amazing gaslighting, mental gymnastics, but rhetorically impressive on her part and probably not enough time for this Australia Sky News reporter to just be like, God damn. And actually like rebut her. But I mean, what she does there is is pretty sneaky, I think. Really think about what she's saying. Now, just about five days or so before the actual invasion happened, uh, Victoria Newland appeared on CBS Morning News. And I don't know why CBS Mornings, and maybe this is just the CBS Mornings logo, not like the CBS logo, looks like a weird, like, occult, like, sun. Now, like, the logo looks like a cult, like... <laughs> like a weird ancient sun image. Anyways, uh, this is a clip of Victoria Newland on Russia-Ukraine tensions right before the actual incursion started. We are joined now by the State Department's Undersecretary for Political Affairs, Victoria Newland. She was also ambassador to NATO under the second Bush administration, so she knows this subject area very well. Uh, ambassador Newland, uh, thank you for joining us. I want to get to that first question about the direction of the crisis. Uh, is it escalating or de-escalating? What's the latest? Tony, even though President Putin is claiming he's withdrawing, our concern is that the troops that matter, those that are ringing Ukraine to the north, to the east, and to the south, are actually increasing their readiness. So he is maintaining every option to go in at a time of his choosing. So it sounds like from your perspective, we're still in a crisis or escalation phase of this, not de-escalation. There was a cyber attack uh, on the Ukrainian army and two banks in the country yesterday. Is it the belief of the U.S. government that that was Putin uh, laying the groundwork potentially for a broader assault? Well, we're still investigating and, and doing forensics along with the Ukrainians. I think what's most important is that these cyber attacks were not very successful. They were the, both the Ministry of Defense and the banks were able to reestablish in real time, and that is a direct result of the hard work that the Ukrainians have been doing with our help to make themselves resilient. But who is best at that, this? Who uses this weapon all around the world? Obviously, the Kremlin. Who's the best at using... Uh, cyber warfare and cyber weapons all around the world. Of course, it's the Kremlin who's spent, you know, it's like bullshit. The U.S. government is probably fucking the best at that in the fucking world. 
our intelligence agencies. Are you kidding me? Have for weeks now, but for the average American sitting at home who wants to understand why this former Soviet republic halfway around the world seems to be so important to the current administration, what do you say to them? What I say to them is if an authoritarian leader anywhere in the world is able to invade their neighbor and take them over by force and deny them sovereignty, then this won't end at Ukraine. It'll happen all around the world. China is watching vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Iran is watching. North Korea is watching. So we have to maintain UN principles of international law that protect the sovereignty and territorial integrity of every single country, notably including Ukraine. That is the front line of the democracies versus the autocracies competition at this moment. Well, Ambassador, uh, uh, President Putin's goal here, to the best uh, we can understand it, is to limit the encroachment of NATO on Russia's border, so the eastern expansion of NATO. Uh, why is it so important for NATO to continue to move in that direction? And is it your concern that Putin could take Ukraine today, but then move to rebuild, essentially, the former Soviet Union in the future? Tony, NATO is a defensive alliance. Its purpose since its founding in 1949 is to protect the security of its members. So if you are not coming for us, we are not coming for you. And uh, Dude, she said it again. I mean, it's just such a weird... It. I, I guess what's interesting about her response in this way is, like, I would think that she would think that most Americans are smart enough to know that we are, especially when it comes to like cyber war, we do, we're doing it to all these other countries around the world. We're coming for Russia. They're coming for us just because the Soviet Union is gone uh, and the tech Cold War is technically over. I mean, ever since at least uh, the 2016 election, the narrative from people like Victoria Newland has been that Russia basically got a Manchurian candidate elected Donald Trump. She is sort of implying that Russia created this self-fulfilling prophecy. Again, she is gaslighting and doing exactly what she's accusing Russia of doing. And in fact, NATO never even had any forces on its east, eastern edge in Poland or the Baltic states until after Russia took Crimea and invaded eastern Ukraine. So this is a, a conflict of Russia's own making. Ambassador, I know that the U.S. government does not want to detail what the sanctions will be against Putin and Russia if there is an invasion. However, I am curious to know why you are confident sanctions will work or could work in this scenario, given they have not been successful in prior conflicts. I'm thinking of Crimea. Tony, what we are preparing this time with the European Union and other allies and partners around the world, including the UK and Canada, will be absolutely crushing financially for Russia and in terms of Russia's ability uh, to grow its economy and modernize going forward. So, you know, not only will this be a bloody, awful conflict for Ukraine and for the Russian people, it will also throw Russia back into isolation for a very, very long time. You asked me a question about rebuilding the Soviet Union. Uh, I mean, you hear what she's about to say? She's basically going to blame Russia for rebuilding the Soviet Union's isolation. I self-isolation from the West for misbehaving. Check it out. I haven't even listened to this clip yet, but I know what she's going to say already. 
You asked me a question about rebuilding the Soviet Union. This is the concern, that Putin has a, a revanchist fantasy about rebuilding the, the former Soviet Union, whether it's, it starts with Ukraine, it includes Belarus, it could go as far as Moldova, and that will throw not only Europe, but the world back into a Cold War posture. And that's what we're trying to prevent, and that's why we want uh, to see diplomacy succeed here, and while we're continuing to press that with Putin and with everybody else on the Russian side. And to avoid, as you put it, a bloody, awful conflict. Ambassador Newland, thank you. Well, I predicted totally wrongly. She didn't say that at all. <laughs> but she did say, uh, she did act as if the Soviet Union, she did act as if Russia is basically just going to go on to try to reconquer all these old European countries and bring them back into some larger russian empire and then at that point it's going to be like the cold war when in reality i mean nato's expansion already basically sets us up for another cold war and that's what she just she refuses to acknowledge of course she's not going to acknowledge it just victoria newland this is her job but i thought the previous interview i played for you of the australian sky news guy was she was uh, more quick on her feet than in this one Kind of just gave some boilerplate, samey answers. The previous one was a little more revealing. But let's move on to Fred Kagan. Um, he's the only other one of the Kagan family that I have interesting video of. Uh, Robert Kagan actually does a live talk tomorrow, a live stream on March 1st at 3 p.m. Eastern. I don't have the details in front of me, but if you want to see him talk a day after this episode comes out, you can live i don't know what he's actually you know what he plans on saying about ukraine the talk isn't about ukraine he did write an editorial in the washington post that i'm going to read some sections from after this uh, invasion happened but the only other uh, kagan family member who had a lot to say after the russian action in ukraine was fred kagan uh, the brother of robert kagan he really respects these some of these russian military strategists who work under Putin and he thinks this was a ridiculously stupid move so he almost thinks that Putin must not be taking their advice that he must be taking some other people's advice because they're smart you know brilliant military strategists he has reverence for these people so I'm going to play you some of Fred Kagan's American Enterprise Institute critical threats project zoom conference and I think this was recorded or broadcast about two days after Putin made his move. So this is a, a live stream between a guy named Leon Aaron and Fred Kagan. So I'm going to comment as this is playing and skip around a bit. Uh, I was also wrong in, uh, in my forecasting and the forecasting that I did um, along with uh, ISW's Russia team um, under the leadership of its terrific uh, team lead uh, analyst, Mason Clark. ISW's Russia team. Um, he's referring to the fact that American Enterprise Institute Critical Threat Project works directly with, and they basically connected uh, at the hip to the Institute for the Study of War, the ISW, Kim Kagan's think tank. Kim Kagan is Fred Kagan's wife. They're a married couple. Continuing. Uh, we have been assessing for months that Putin was unlikely to launch the full-scale uh, ground invasion and occupation of Ukraine um, for various reasons. 
um, some of them, uh, as, as uh, you laid out, Leon, some of them having to do with military technical issues about the way that Russian uh, ground forces in particular were arrayed around Ukraine. Um, I think, and so I'm honestly, as we're tracking this crisis, I'm also formulating in my mind and with the team, our own after action review to, uh, to determine exactly why we were wrong, um, which, we'll, which we will likely publish at some point, um, although it's mainly of interest to us, I think. Um, and I, I think at the moment, I'm inclined to say the primary factor that we got wrong is that Putin went crazy. Uh, that Putin changed his, his, he really has changed in some fundamental way. Okay. Do you hear that? One of the craziest neocons of them all, um, who said we should send troops into Palestinian territories to clean it out as a response to 9-11, about to flex his, uh, Russian language speaking abilities. Russian has so many wonderful ways of putting things and crazy in Russian is sumashechi, which is literally, uh, walked away from his mind. Um, and for some weeks it's been, it's dawned on me that actually he, Putin, I think really has walked away from his mind in, in a fundamental way. And that, um, that sort of craziness has manifested itself in a number of ways. Um, one of which is that he had so many other ways he was setting up skillfully so many other ways of achieving the objective of regaining control of Ukraine without having to launch a dangerous and costly military operation. That's a really intriguing first comment. Almost like Fred Kagan has reverence for what he would describe as Putin waging hybrid warfare and sort of waging more covert warfare in Ukraine to destabilize it and, and regain some kind of control over it. He was doing so well along so many of those non-military lines of advance that this is unnecessary from the standpoint of actually regaining control of Ukraine. I assessed and continue to assess that uh, this was unnecessary. It almost seems like if you're, if you could see his face right now, it almost seems like he's like, why didn't Putin take, you know, ask me for advice. This this you know, this is terrible that he would do something like this. I wouldn't have, I would have told, given him way better advice in this his whoever was giving an advice to secretly covertly regain control of ukraine before was was doing a great job that was way smarter fred kagan's basically saying here uh, he was likely to be able to create a circumstance in ukraine within a couple of years at a minimum in which the country was ungovernable um and the current political order was cracking there were ukrainian elections for parliament scheduled for 2023 and then president 2024 um, and it looked like, and I think this is true, that Putin's guys were setting uh, uh, informational and domestic conditions in Ukraine and in Europe and, and with us uh, to create a, a much more advantageous environment for him uh, to play around with in that time period. And that looked like, first of all, the kind of classic play that Putin has been doing for 20 years uh, and very much in accord with his preferred courses of action much less risky than what he's doing right now, and certainly much less costly. And for all of those reasons, uh, we assessed and forecast that he would not do what he's currently doing. Uh, and yet here he is. He has in fact launched the ground invasion. Um, 
uh, we've had uh, Russian troops advancing uh, along uh, at least five axes uh, north from Crimea. Uh, they've pushed north and they're uh, driving toward the Dnipro River. I'm choosing to use, even though I'm, my background is in Russian, I'm choosing to use Ukrainian names for Ukrainian places. Um, so they're driving north toward the Dnipro River. They have attacked uh, Mariupol, not only uh, with missiles, but also by ground. Uh, they're attacking around uh, Kharkiv, uh, the second largest city in Ukraine, very close to the Russian border. And they're driving uh, south from Belarus and from Russia on Kyiv itself. Um, these operations so far are, they're not, it is not being conducted in the way that a competent professional military would conduct an operation. Uh, the ground operations began uh, within four hours of the start of the air campaign. Uh, they began before the Russians had secured air supremacy. So there have been Ukrainian combat aircraft flying around shooting at Russians. This is insanity on the Russians' part, and it's unnecessary. So he's basically calling this operation incompetent. And I wonder if this is also some kind of taunt you know, maybe on some level, Fred knows that there are Russians who pay attention to him. There are Russians in the Russian military who probably pay attention to what he's saying. And he's sort of, you know, throwing sand in their eye. You guys are incompetent fools. Look what you've done. You fucking idiots. The Russians had the air and missile capability to destroy the Ukrainian Air Force's ability to operate, even if they didn't destroy all of the individual airframes. And they chose not to. They chose to uh, move ground forces forward in an environment in which there are Ukrainian combat aircraft still operable. This is this is an unnecessary risk, and it's not something that a normal, competent, professional military would undertake. Uh, he's really digging in. And there's also, again, this sort of air of frustration, like, oh, my God, I can't believe Putin didn't listen to someone as good as me. You know, like, I'm here helping the Americans... I'm a I'm a genius. I'm a neocon Machiavellian genius. And why doesn't he have? Why didn't he listen to someone like me over there? But the funny thing is, if people more people would listen to people like Fred Kagan here, we'd already be like the intro to Terminator Two. We'd be in a nuclear Armageddon wasteland right now. Uh, given the force concentrations that the Russians have down there and the ways that they could have approached that. There was no need for them to suffer initial uh, setbacks. Uh, initial attempts to take Mariupol by ground were repulsed. This is also crazy. Um, there are reports that they have been repulsed along other axes of advance. This is all temporary. I want to make it very clear that the Russians will win the conventional war here. Uh, the, the sheer uh, weight of forces that Putin has assembled around Ukraine is enough to grind the Ukrainians down um, and and eventually destroy the conventional Ukrainian military and seize and occupy whatever positions in Ukraine Putin chooses to do. That Russia's ability to do that is not uh, in question. But I had a lot more respect for uh, Gerasimov, the Russian chief of the general staff, and I had a lot more respect for Zhuravlev, the commander of the Western Military District, and for Dvornikov, the commander of the Southern Military District. These guys fought in Syria 
Uh, they're competent professional military officers. They've written brilliantly about their experiences. Uh, these guys know better than this. Can you imagine that this is how Fred Kagan spends his time as he reads these Russian language, like autobiographies with these obscure Russian military figures? And he's here he is having all this reverence for them. I mean, I've never even heard of these guys. I don't even think anyone's heard of these people. I mean, so it's pretty amazing that, uh, you know, he's, again, he's sort of taunting them, but he's also acknowledging the reality. You know, he, he probably his most candid, honest moment is that, yeah, Russia will grind down Ukraine eventually. So whatever losses they took, you know, in this initial incursion ultimately doesn't really matter to continue with some of his reverence. And so I think this one of the second errors that I made in uh, my forecasting was not taking enough account of rumors and hints that we were getting that Putin was getting, quote, bad advice. And I really, I, I look forward to learning at some point in history who was actually giving him this advice. Was it Shoigu? Is it the, was it the Minister of Defense who is not a professional military man? Is he playing the, the Hermann Goering to, to Putin's Hitler here and, and providing the, the, the word that his boss wanted to hear? Yeah. Or Budyonny, or Budyonny to Stalin. Or Budyonny to Stalin. Right. There, yeah, there's a, there's a track record of this kind of thing. At least Budyonny was a professional military man. Yeah. Shoigu was, man, but yeah. Yeah, but you know, Shoigu is a politician. I mean, he's yeah. been in this position for a long time. I, I have no evidence of this. Um, only, only little bits and pieces. I mean, he's probably on some level right. If this was meant to look like a much more successful thing, then it was a miscalculation and it does seem like Putin was taking bad advice. I mean, I think Fred Kagan might be right about this, unfortunately. Listen to what else he has to say about it. Someone I think has been giving Putin bad advice. And so we have so far a surprisingly inept uh, opening campaign. Honestly, it's, it, it reminds me more of the initial Soviet operations against Finland um, than anything else. Now, Ukraine is not Finland. Uh, and this isn't Stalin's Soviet Union. So Putin will lean into this. And I, I want to be very clear that we should expect that the Russians will win this conventional war uh, and the Ukrainians will not be able to stop them. But I think that the prospects are much greater than I had feared that the Ukrainians will be able to blood the Russians significantly in the process. Much greater than he feared. What does that even mean? Like he just had almost no faith in the Ukrainians, even after we gave them like tow missiles to just blast armored tanks, like heat seeking armored tank destroying missiles, shoulder mounted rocket launchers. This is not looking like this is going to turn into, and we'll see. You should take everything I say with a grain of salt because I've just told you that my various forecasts have been wrong um, for some time. <laughs> Yeah, dude, your various forecasts about the surge, when the Iraq war was going to be over, how many troops we needed to defeat ISIS, all these things were really wrong. I mean, I remember one of the last forecasts Fred Kagan made was he said that we needed to send in 30,000 U.S. troops back into Iraq to stop ISIS and that anything less than that would be totally unserious. And he just said this with the, in the most matter-of-fact way. And I mean... You know, we did cause a lot of carnage in terms of the amount of bombing that was done over there, but it didn't take uh, 30,000 troops 
But I love it. I mean, that he's, you know, he doesn't even realize what he's saying there. But neocons like him were very wrong about the Iraq war. So let's hear that again, just because it was so pleasurable. Let's hear that, him say that. And we'll see. <laughs> you should take everything I say with a grain of salt, because I've just told you that my various forecasts have been wrong um, for some time. Yeah, your forecasts have been wrong for a very long time. Now, this is interesting. He knows a lot about uh, some warlord, I guess, that Putin was uh, hyping up in Chechnya against the Ukrainians. And he thinks that this was a miscalculation on Putin's part. Listen to what he says here. In Ramazan Kadyrov, a Chechen war criminal who specializes in atrocity uh, on Ukraine's northern frontier. He's concentrated Kadyrov's guys in Belarus. Listen, there's only one thing that Kadyrov's guys know how to do. They know how to commit war crimes and atrocities. That is their professional expertise. And when you concentrate those guys uh, on a border and you make it clear that you intend to send them in, that's not going to persuade Ukrainians to surrender. That's going to persuade them to fight to the death. So it's kind of weird that the way Fred Kagan talks about that. It's almost like he's seen, you know, videos and pictures of these war crimes that this guy has committed. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if Fred Kagan's looking at a lot of snuff stuff, you know, as part of his hobby, um, as this, this war, you know, think tanker dude. It sounds like he's kind of relishing the degree of atrocities this guy commits a little bit. Listen. So I think that we're very likely to have uh, a move toward irregular warfare and insurgency here. And um, this is not going to be a short, uh, victorious war, as Leon said, with the consequences that I think Leon has described. Now, I think it's important to step back from the details of this and just make another observation that transcends the, the issue of Russia's future, which is, which is NATO's future. So we have a problem here. One problem is we, we can discuss the moral ethical position that we've adopted of writing Ukraine off and deciding that uh, the United States and the West is going to watch uh, Putin uh, just invade and subjugate an innocent, peaceful state that posed no threat to him. That is our formal position. Uh, and we can, we can discuss the moral ethical wisdom of that. We can also discuss this geostrategic wisdom of that, but it's beside the point because that's the decision that has been made and I'm confident that it's not going to be reversed. That's an interesting comment too. Why is he confident that that's not going to be reversed? I mean, he's basically complaining about the fact that the U.S. government's official position is not that we immediately need to rush to the aid of them basically by sending in U.S. forces because they're not a NATO country. They don't activate Article 5 and create an automatic response from NATO troops. But he's sort of complaining about the fact that the U.S. just won't send in troops based on this, and he doesn't think that position's going to be reversed anytime soon. That's kind of what he's talking about. Beyond Ukraine, because Ukraine is not the end. As Leon said, the objective, Putin's objective is not just to win Ukraine. It is to reconstitute an empire. Again, I mean, this is a premise that I think is very, very overblown. What he's saying right here, Putin does not want to recreate the Soviet Union and reclaim all that territory. But I do think it's getting increasingly difficult to say that Putin isn't talking about taking back some other aspects of like Russian territory. 
that used to be the former Soviet Union. It, it's almost like Putin does seem to be playing more into NATO's hands or these think tankers' hands by making it more blatant that he has these ambitions rather than like just an accusation. Now Putin seems to actually be talking about these kind of things and it's getting harder for me to be like, well, you know, there's absolutely no way he has any, uh, he's, he's not looking at a country like Poland. I mean, he, he started talking about it recently and it's just like, why is he doing that? It seems like he's just kind of giving them exactly what they want rhetorically. Which empire? Well, that matters. Certainly the Soviet empire. If the Georgians are not currently quaking in their boots, they should be, because the Georgians were also mentioned by NATO in the uh, Bucharest statement as being promised NATO membership. Whenever this major phase ends, I fully expect Putin to look at Tbilisi and say, so are we done with this now or where are you? Uh, and I do think that at this point, Georgia will would be an easy fight for Putin, even whatever difficulties his military encounters in Ukraine. And then the Baltics, listen, Americans, you need to internalize something. The world has changed. A key pillar of the post-Cold War world has just collapsed. The entire post-Cold War order was based on the reality that there was no significant Russian conventional military threat to NATO. Every single aspect of the post-Cold War order in Europe rested on that fact. NATO defense budgets rested on that fact. NATO military posture rested on that fact. American defense budgets have rested on that fact. American military posture has rested on that fact. Bullshit. I love how he even goes into American military defense budgets. I mean, are you kidding me? They've been trying to exacerbate conflict between Russia and the United States this whole time. So much of this stuff is based on game theory. What is he even talking about? Again, this sort of moral posturing, acting as if whatever the U.S. decides to do is morally justifiable, essentially. American military posture has rested on that fact. What does it mean? If Putin took a force of the size that he now has, or even one considerably smaller, and targeted it at the Baltic states, with the forces that we currently have there, we could not defend them. No. Worse than that, we could not defend Poland. What about Poland? Remember when George W. Bush said that? I mean, this is another trick that these neocons pull is basically they try to deduce everything down to these like game theoried out scenarios about how many troops you would need etc. to wage a war. And he's basically saying that because there's not enough U.S. troops stationed inside Europe ready to respond to Russia like invading Poland, um, that that puts us at a huge disadvantage. And he's basically about to complain about how we'd need to send in troops like from the United States to like help fill in that role. We'd be able to defend it, no problem. But it would be inconvenient because like we don't have enough troops already. And that's really you know, that's really scary because Poland might fall before we're able to take it back. I mean, it just goes to show how these people think, how weird their mindset is. With the forces we currently have in theater. Another of Putin's favorites. And a former member unwillingly of the Tsarist Empire. 
We could not defend Poland with the forces that we currently have in Europe. We could defend it with the might of um, the American military, but we would have to flow divisions into Europe to do that. We will have to do that. Okay. So you just have to move some troops around? You mean you couldn't, with the drop of a hat, be able to get enough U.S. troops from Europe to defend Poland? I mean, imagine what these people would actually want how many troops they would really want to be like stationed overseas. I mean, if Fred Kagan was unfiltered and he didn't wasn't worried about what people would think about him, I mean, I wouldn't even be surprised if he thought a troop presence of 20 times the amount of armed service members around the world was necessary to properly protect the so-called order. So as we continue to imagine that we're going to stop investing in readiness now and we're going to focus on modernization, and we have to stop worrying about Europe and the Middle East, and we have to focus like a laser beam on Taiwan and China. No, we can't. No. <laughs> He's frustrated that some of these other think tanks are just gunning for China, you know, and that they've kind of taken their eye off the ball, which is Europe and Russia. He's like, no, we can't take our eye off this. We got to fucking be ready. Because, and this is a sort of an ominous warning that he leaves he leaves off with. There's a lot more to this talk, but it turns into a Q&A rather quickly after this that I don't think is as interesting. I think he's more candid during this section. But listen to what he says about what this means. What this means for history, what this means for the moment and time, just what this means for geopolitical affairs. And I think coming from someone like him, this is a very ominous sign. Not saying that he's right about the way this is going to play out, because it is too early to tell in a lot of different ways. But listen to what he says. We have to be prepared to defend NATO militarily against a Russian conventional threat for the first time since 1990. And that is a change in the world. And we're going to have to wrap our heads around it some way. Very ominous warning sign to leave off with. Well, I'll just give you a little bit more updates about what the Kagan family is up to right now. I haven't seen very much public-facing stuff from Kim Kagan herself. Just that her think tank, the Institute for the Study of War, is making quite an impact basically just in all of think tank world right now. They're the one releasing maps, uh, these very up-to-date maps that seem to get updated every day. Um, they have Twitter threads uh, that are going on even the American Enterprise Institute's Critical Threats Project Twitter account with updates of these maps showing assessed control of terrain in Ukraine and main Russian maneuver axis, things like that. But General Jack Keane has been appearing almost every single day on Fox News, sometimes twice a day, sometimes three times a day. And he is basically the spokesperson for Institute for the Study of War in the right-wing media sphere. For some reason, they choose him maybe because he's not considered a liberal. He's never really, you know, been associated with anything liberal. So it's very easy. He kind of comes off like this tough guy, John Wayne-ish, old-school general. But he's been there going on Fox News almost every single day um, since all of this started to flare up again about a month ago. And it's just very interesting to me to see Fox News sort of fully pivoting to being very hawkish towards Russia um, and this stuff all sort of coming together at once. Uh, David Petraeus, who is considered someone 
who is associated with liberalism or the Obama era, um, he is also appearing on Fox News as an Institute for the Study of War employee, uh, giving his opinion on Putin and Russia. But last but not least, Robert Kagan, in an editorial for the Washington Post, it came out on the 21st of February. And Robert Kagan echoes Fred by saying, even before the invasion, some question whether NATO could actually defend its Baltic members from a Russian attack. Once Russia has completed its conquest of Ukraine, that question will acquire new urgency. He then claims that Poland and Lithuania will basically be in the pathway of the headquarters of the Russian Baltic fleet in Kaliningrad. And he is saying, expect a Russian demand for a direct corridor that would put strips of the countries under Russian control. But even that would just be one piece of what is sure to be a new Russian strategy to delink the Baltics from NATO by demonstrating that the alliance cannot any longer hope to protect those countries. Now he's talking about if Ukraine just becomes part of Russia, with Poland, Hungary, and five other NATO members sharing a border with a new expanded Russia, the ability of the United States and NATO to defend the alliance's eastern flank will also be seriously diminished. Today, Putin seeks at the very least a two-tier NATO, in which no allied forces are deployed on former Warsaw Pact territory. This takes place, moreover, as China threatens to upend the strategic balance in East Asia, perhaps with an attack of some kind against Taiwan. From a strategic point of view, Taiwan can either be a major obstacle to Chinese regional hegemony as it is now, or can be the first big step towards Chinese military dominance. These simultaneous strategic challenges in two distant theaters are reminiscent of the 1930s, when Germany and Japan sought to overturn the existing order in their respective regions. Of course, just like Hitler and Japan, he's saying, Xi Jinping and, and Putin are like Hitler and the Japanese fascist emperor. And then he ends this by saying that it is wishful thinking to imagine that this conflict stops with Ukraine. The map of Europe has experienced many changes over the centuries. The next revision will likely reflect the revival of Russian military power and the retraction of U.S. influence. If combined with Chinese gains in East Asia and Western Pacific, it will herald the end of the present order and the beginning of the global disorder and conflict as every region in the world shakily adjusts to a new configuration of power. So he's really uh, committed to this idea that America is giving up its role in the international order. He seems almost kind of resigned to it. There's not very much strategic advocacy in there about what should be done. Even Fred Kagan seemed resigned to the idea that there's no way that the U.S. is going to change its posture to put in troops, because that's essentially what these people really want. Because then it shows that we mean business. But I know I've been stuck on the Kagans for a very long time in this episode, and I promised I was going to talk about the new 60 Minutes special on Havana Syndrome that actually plays an audio recording, recorded by somebody, of what this Havana Syndrome supposed sonic weapon sounds like. So let me just um, intro this segment by just playing you the intro to the 60 Minutes segment itself. Because there are thematic similarities here to the UFO 60 Minutes special. One similarity is that the idea that UFOs are real or that microwave weapons that can damage your brain are real used to be in the domain of paranoid conspiracy theories. Targeted individual, 
electronic interference, electronic harassment, gang stalking. Now 60 Minutes is telling us that the government believes that these are actually happening. They're just using different terminology for it. Just like 60 Minutes didn't use the terminology extraterrestrial or aliens, but they did use the, tech, uh, the terminology UFO and aircraft, unidentified aircraft. I mean, they're basically talking about the same thing that has been in the domain of paranoid conspiracy folklore in the United States, but now it's becoming normalized and legitimized. While the UFO special was pretty creepy, and some of those eyewitness testimonies of it were, you know, creepy in their own right, nobody on that special was breaking down into tears, talking about how their life has been ruined from witnessing a Tic Tac UFO. So this 60-minute special about Havana Syndrome has a strong difference in the sense that it does have people basically talking about how their lives have been ruined over this, this mysterious microwave sound weapon. So let's, uh, let's start by playing the intro to the 60-minute special. Since 2016, U.S. government officials overseas and their families have reported sudden, unexplained brain injuries with symptoms of vertigo, confusion, and memory loss. The CIA, FBI, and State Department are investigating a theory that some of these officials were injured by an unseen weapon. Who might be targeting Americans and why are unknown. Incidents have been reported in Europe, Asia, and Latin America, but our reporting has found senior national security officials who say they were stricken in Washington and on the grounds of the White House. The former officials you're about to meet are revealing their experiences for the first time. They were responsible for helping to manage threats to national security. I covered any and all emerging threats, um, homeland security incidents domestically. So I covered whether it was from mass shootings to hurricanes to natural disasters. Olivia Troy was homeland security and counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. She had served in the Pentagon, deployed to Iraq, served in the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Counterterrorism Center. At the White House, she worked in the 19th century Eisenhower Executive Office Building beside the West Wing. In the summer of 2019, she was descending these stairs toward the White House when she felt she had been physically struck. But it was like this piercing feeling on the side of my head. It was like, I remember it was on the right side of my head and I, I got like vertigo. Um, I was unsteady. Um, I was... I felt nauseous. Um, I was somewhat disoriented, and I was just, I remember thinking, like, okay, you gotta, if you don't fall down the stairs, like, you've gotta find your ground again and steady yourself. She steadied herself on a railing, but the piercing feeling continued as she passed by this entrance to the West Wing. It was almost like I couldn't really process. It was like a paralyzing panic attack. I've never had that. Um, I've never felt anything like that. And so I, I, you know, I thought to myself, I mean, do I have a brain tumor out of the blue? Is, is this what happened? Am I having a stroke? Olivia Troy was inside the security perimeter, headed to her car. She went down the steps, past the West Wing, and down the closed parking lot used by presidents 
called West Executive Avenue. Then she passed through the Secret Service gate and out to the staff parking in the Ellipse, south of the White House. Did you ever experience anything like this again? So not immediately, um, but I did again about a year later. Um, it didn't happen on the steps. It happened uh, a, a couple times walking to my car on the ellipse. Tell me about those times. It was a similar sensation, but this time it was um, very much the feeling of, of vertigo and dizziness, um, and I felt like I couldn't really walk. There was sort of a, it was like I had a depth perception issue where I couldn't figure out where the ground was. Um, and I would start walking and I felt like I was just gonna fall right into the ground. Troy says she didn't report the episodes because she didn't want to believe she was seriously ill. And she worried what it would mean to her security clearance and career. After this interview, she reported for the first time. There is a human aspect of it of shame and do you really want to admit you're sick? Do you want to come forward and tell someone that, especially as a member of the intelligence community? I think I'm still processing all of it and thinking about like how many more people are like me who felt this. It appears there are several. A senior member of the National Security Council says he was stricken in November 2020 on the same steps by the West Wing. That former official, whose incident was first reported in The New Yorker, asked us not to name him, but he described the incident to a close colleague, John Bolton, former national security advisor. They had uh, disorientation and uh, ringing and, and, uh, in their ears and, and just a general inability to function. Bolton told us the official said he couldn't speak or think clearly. He was taken to an emergency room. The former official sent us this note, saying that more than a year later, I'm still recovering and suffering from headaches and other symptoms and have been diagnosed with two other medical conditions that are believed to be the result of the attack. He's still an outpatient at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. That was a very debilitating attack and, uh, and similar to what others have reported. Those others include Miles Taylor, also speaking for the first time. Taylor was deputy chief of staff and later chief of staff of the Trump administration Department of Homeland Security. Your job is to oversee the roughly 250,000 men and women of the department that conduct in a range of missions from aviation security to border security to cybersecurity. Taylor told us he was hit with the same symptoms described by Olivia Troy. It was late one night in April 2018. I'd just become deputy chief of staff of the department, taking on some additional sensitive issues at DHS, and uh, woke up uh, in my apartment that night, a row house on Capitol Hill, to a really strange sound. The sound that woke Miles Taylor is a common experience reported by dozens of Americans stricken overseas. It was sort of a chirping, somewhere between what you would think is a cricket or sort of a digital sound. I didn't know what it was, but it was enough to wake me up. What was really strange about it is I went to the window, opened up my window, looked down at the street, and keep in mind, Scott, this is probably 3, 3.30 in the morning, and I see a white van, and the van's brake lights turned on, and it pulled off, 
and it sped away. How long did it last? This whole episode only lasted about seven to 10 minutes. How did you feel the next day? Off, uh, off, not ready to go to work. Uh, you know, kind of wanting to take the day off, um, you know, sick. Then about five weeks later, Taylor says it happened again. Next day, feeling off balance, feeling just out of it. Again, those sort of concussion-like symptoms you would have from, you know, getting knocked pretty hard in a sport. And it, that incident stood out to me because I was actually just getting ready to leave to go to Israel on a congressional delegation. We were going to meet the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, have some sensitive conversations with the Israelis on important cybersecurity issues. And I remember because I got to the airplane at Andrews Air Force Base to take off and thought, I'm already nauseous. In 2019, during a visit by President Trump to London, two members of John Bolton's national security staff became ill in a hotel and uh, that it was on the floor where uh, it would completely taken up with personnel from the White House and White House agencies uh, struck me as being uh, pretty good evidence of a deliberate attack. You believe it was an attack? I, I don't think there's any other hypothesis when you begin to look at the, the number and the pattern that we've experienced. Bolton says months later, one of those staff members hurt in London said she was overcome again, walking her dog in the Washington area. We have found she is not the only one who says they were attacked abroad and later at home. You must have thought that when you were home in America, that you were safe. I, I'll tell you, when I landed from China, I literally was kissing the ground. We met Robin Garfield in 2019. He's a Commerce Department official who told us that he, his wife, and two children were repeatedly hit in China. Your daughter was literally falling down? Yes, she fell down multiple times that day. They were evacuated and enrolled in a State Department treatment program at the University of Pennsylvania. Recently, Garfield told us his family was hit again during their year of treatment in Philadelphia. My wife catapulted out of bed uh, and sprinted down the hallway to, to check the children without any word. And she came back and she told me that a extremely loud, painful sound um, had woken her up. So they moved to a hotel where Garfield says it happened again. And we woke up around, I believe, 2 a.m. Um, with strange vibrations uh, in our bodies and a, a sound. Which led Garfield to check on his children in another room. I saw an extremely eerie scene where both were thrashing in their beds um, asleep, but both kicking and moving um, pretty aggressively. And I went over to my daughter and I put my head down next to her head and I heard a very distinct sound uh, just right there, sort of like water rushing. So I picked her up, took her in, put her with my wife and came back and I checked my son. Same sound, just right next to his head. So I picked him up, put him on my shoulder, walked over to my wife and I said, we're getting out of here. Garfield reported this to the FBI. Today, his family is posted abroad where they continue to work to improve balance eyesight and memory. 
Persistent neurological symptoms are not the only fight these Americans have faced. Some of their early reports were dismissed as psychosomatic. One theory had it that the sound these victims heard during the incidents was actually a particular species of cicada. It was rough. It was rough in the beginning. It was a dark place to be. We were kind of shoved aside and they wanted it to go away. This man is among those who fought for recognition. It kind of almost sounds like the same way 60 Minutes framed the UFO segment. Do you notice that? That the government just kind of wanted to hide this and pretend it wasn't happening, just kind of brush it under the rug. Cuba say they and their families were struck at home frequently in the night. He remembers the first time. And that night, all the dogs started kicking off in the neighborhood, barking, which is very unusual for them all to go in chorus. And then this just loud sound just absolutely filled my room. It felt like my head was slowly starting to get crushed. We agreed not to use his name. He is not allowed to say what federal agency he worked for. And then, then the ear, severe ear pain started. So I, I liken it to if you put a Q-tip too far and you bounce off your eardrum. Well, imagine taking a sharp pencil and just kind of poking that. It was very um, jarring and painful. And eventually I started blacking out. With the first public reports coming from Cuba, the affliction became known as Havana syndrome. More than two dozen embassy officials reported injury, but an early FBI report speculated it was all mass hysteria. His brain injuries left him disabled, essentially retired at the age of 36. A weighted vest helps him balance, his service dog helps with walking, and his loss of vision. Legally blind in one eye. Correct, yeah. What have the doctors told you? It's not the eye, it's the wiring. What do you mean? That the, the eye function as itself is completely correct and appropriate. It's the signal that comes out the back of the eye into the brain is where the, where the problems are. And no one really knows how to fix that. He is speaking tonight for the first time to put an end to doubt. You have not wanted to do this interview. No. This is probably one of my worst nightmares. Why is that? I didn't do my job because I want to be known. I did my job because I love my country and I was good at it. God, and I miss my job. I'm here because I'm tired of the gaslighting that keeps happening from the US government. I'm tired of this yo-yoing because I'm watching new colleagues and friends that I've trained with and friends that I've known for years that are being sent to these countries and coming back a shell of their former selves. I mean, do you hear what he's saying? He's acting like the US government's gaslighting these victims of this into thinking it's not happening. And that he's watching other colleagues of his who go into these field assignments. Obviously this dude's CIA, if you didn't gather that already. Get shell-shocked and they're a shell of their former selves when they get back home. I mean, maybe the CIA has you do some really heinous shit, dude. Maybe you haven't seen, been on one of those kind of assignments yet. But on the other hand, I, I believe this is probably real. Like, that this is something really, that these people are really experiencing on some level. We need to help them, and we need to stop this. But who is it that must be stopped? When we come back, we'll ask the director of the CIA about his investigation 
and we'll look at the kind of device capable of inflicting brain injury without a trace. Brain injuries suffered by U.S. officials in Washington and abroad are the focus of an intense investigation. After starting with around 1,000 possible cases, a CIA task force has zeroed in on about two dozen that cannot be explained. The task force, which includes the FBI, is led by a CIA officer who helped find Osama bin Laden. The new director of the CIA, William Burns, told us one thing is already clear. After early disbelief, these injured Americans can no longer be doubted. Well, so that, I mean, that says it right there, is that they're not, they're no longer being gaslit. They, you know, they finally admitted to it. And now they're letting them talk about it on 60 Minutes, basically, to get the word out. But what kind of psychological purpose would this type of segment cause? Is this another America is cucked? helpless those are two thematic similarities also between the ufo segment and this one is that we have no idea what this is and we're just powerless to stop it and coming up pretty soon they're actually going to play the actual sound effect now from that point on i'm going to switch away from the 60 minute segment and just actually read to you and play you some recordings of other sound designers musicians synthesizer experts who I talked to and asked for their opinions about this, um, you're going to hear their opinions about what they think about the actual sound itself and just maybe their comments on what the phenomenon might be. In my first week as director, I began what had become dozens and dozens of meetings with affected officers and family members, and I've found their stories to be powerful and compelling and sometimes heartbreaking. Bill Burns had heard those stories from CIA officers who reported injuries since 2016. But this past fall, while on an official visit to India, a member of his staff was stricken in their hotel. Later, Burns personally escorted that staff member to medical evaluations. It seems that the Delhi incident might have been intended to send you a message. I don't know, and as I said, I can't comment on individual cases here as well. All I can tell you is that each story I've heard, each officer I've met with who's been affected by this, just redoubles my commitment and my determination on this issue. Have it. He can't comment or not on if he's a targeted individual. But the, but the 60 Minutes reporter definitely wants to uh, imply that. Enormous faith in our officers. Bill Burns served five presidents at the State Department, rising to the highest rank in the Foreign Service. He took over CIA for President Biden last spring. Early on, I tripled the number of full-time medical personnel working on this issue. We streamlined access to Walter Reed, established new partnerships with other world-class medical providers, increased the number of case managers. And we're also making progress on the investigative side as well. Progress on the investigative side came this month with a report on the nature of the brain injury. What we're hearing about now is... Dr. David Relman helped lead two government panels that investigated the injuries. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University. David Relman is also the guy who led the National Academy of Sciences investigation into the FBI's forensic evidence in the anthrax case and he 
helped determine that the FBI's forensic evidence was bunk. So this is David Relman being commissioned by the National Academy of Sciences again, working on investigating basically anecdotal accounts of and recorded accounts of Havana syndrome, so-called Havana syndrome. Now, they didn't do any original first-hand studies or like accounts or recordings or take any data of their own that way firsthand for the study, but they just gathered it where they could that it pre-existed. Don't worry, the sound is coming up very soon. What we found was, we thought, clear evidence of an injury to the auditory and vestibular system of the brain. Everything starting with the inner ear where humans perceive sound and sense balance and then translate those perceptions into uh, brain electrical signals. Dr. Relman's committees focused on one subset of patients whose experiences seemed inexplicable. This subset of cases had a very unusual so-called acute sensory event, an experience that consisted of the abrupt onset of intense pressure or vibration in the face or head, sometimes with the abrupt onset of sound. Sound like that described by the officials who spoke to us. And then this just loud sound just absolutely filled my room. This former official who we agreed not to name recorded the sound at his home in Havana. Before we play it, understand that the sound does not cause the injury. It is a byproduct, like the sound of a gun, which is not what does the harm. Before they actually play the sound, how did they know that? I mean, if this is ultrasonic and the audio playback I mean, I guess technically if this is not above like 20 kilohertz or 40 kilohertz, if it's not above the Nyquist limit, then it's probably not going to do any damage. But I don't think you can compare it. The comparison he's making is inaccurate. This is not like hearing a recording of a gunshot sound, you know, on a movie versus having like a gunshot go off right near your ear. So the circumstances of this guy recording the Havana syndrome sound um, is unknown. He doesn't really say, I walked out to my balcony in my underwear, I got up from bed and started recording on my cell phone. I had an audio recorder. I happened to have one. I happened to have a microphone. I started recording it. He doesn't explain that, but what we've been led to believe this whole time is that this is an acute onset, very directional event that you can actually leave the room and it'll stop. But as soon as you enter the room, again, it'll continue to happen. So how did, how, what were the circumstances in which this guy recorded this sound we're about to hear of what they say is the Havana syndrome sound? How did he record this? Take a listen. Play it. Understand that the sound does not cause the injury. It is a byproduct, like the sound of a gun, which is not what does the harm. Here's what he recorded. The injured officials we spoke with said the sound, or a feeling of pressure, came from one direction and focused in one location. Okay, so you heard that, right? 
Now, I guess just as a listener, before I influence you with my own thoughts about what it sounds like, or what I think about it, sit for a second and let's go back to that sound. I'm going to play it back again. And I want you to sort of close your eyes and don't be afraid to really listen to it on headphones. It's not going to hurt your ears. It's a little high-pitched sounding, but what does this sound like to you? What does this remind you of? What is it? What what immediately just comes to your head when you're listening to this closely? Here's what he recorded. It sounds to me like there's some ruffling of his clothing. There's some ambient sounds happening outside, maybe even some distant voices or maybe music. But if you had a chance to think about what that sounds like to you, um, keep that in your mind. And now I'm going to actually talk about what I think about it. You know, initially when I heard it, I was like, oh, this sounds like I could see how someone thought that this sound sounds like cicadas or that it was cicadas. Kind of sounds a little bit like, you know, a loud cicada. But on the other hand, um, a cicada or an insect sound to me seems a little bit more rich. Um, this seems a little bit more blatantly synthetic sounding, like almost like as if someone's trying to synthesize the sound of a cicada, but it has a very cicada-like, insect-like tone to it, frequency tone, frequency range to it. Now, what's some evidence to back up the fact that this is insect-like or, you know, you can't rule out a cicada? Well, if you load up this sound on a spectrogram and you compare it to other cicada sounds, um, I found a couple. One of them actually recorded in Japan, which is sort of the perfect example of a very loud, ear-piercing cicada sound. I found them on uh, freesounds.org. Great website great resource. Um, and I'll just play you the sounds back to back and you can just sort of hear what they sound like. And even when you look at them on a spectrogram, the cicada sound and this sound, the supposed Havana syndrome sound on a spectrogram, most of the energy when you look at a spectrogram on this supposed Havana syndrome recording takes up the spectrum between about seven and six kilohertz. Now I'm going to play the original 60 Minutes broadcast recording again back-to-back with a Japanese cicada recording. But what I'm saying is if you look at both of these files on a spectrogram and zoom into them similarly, you'll see that they take up the same general frequency range. Although the cicada sound seems a little more rich, richly harmonic, it has more overtones and different frequencies happening around that range. Um, they still sound similar enough, I think, to be notable. So first I'm going to play the Havana Syndrome recording, and then I'm going to play you a recording from freesounds.org of a close-up recording of a Japanese cicada. Now I'm going to play the Havana Syndrome sound again, 
this time back to back with a different cicada recording, one that's a little further away that sounds more like multiple cicadas, a sound that you maybe would be more used to hearing and not one as up close as in that last recording. And in fact, that last recording I played you um, of the actual cicada that you just heard is an extremely good recording. I've, I personally never heard a clean, super up close to a cicada recording like that. Very impressed with the person who was able to record that. Um, but here's one that you may be more familiar with just in your daily life if you've heard cicadas before. So I'm going to play again the Havana Syndrome first and then a different cicada recording, a more washed out one, following it for comparison. I'll just say right off the bat that the alleged sound recording of Havana sounds way more like an individual up close and personal cicada sound than it does more a washed out field of cicadas and the distance surrounding you type of sound. So that's interesting. So it while it does sound like cicadas, it actually more sounds like an up and close and personal right in your face kind of cicada sound rather than a typical type of sound. So my initial reaction to it that I already posted on Twitter was that it just sounds like a high-pitched cluster of sound waves. Uh, the zoomed-out spectrogram shows that almost all the energy in this sound is between 6 and 7 kilohertz. And my initial reaction was that it sounds like loud cicadas but more synthetic-sounding. And what I meant by that was it almost sounds like someone generating a cicada-ish insect type sound effect using a synthesizer of some kind. And this is actually after on the spectrogram, I remove all the energy below 8K. I get rid of that main band of energy. And by the way, when you zoom in and onto a spectrogram of the Havana syndrome sound effect that I just played you and compare it to a spectrogram of this Japanese cicada uh, sound or you know a typical loud cicada sound it takes up energy around the same spectrum and it looks visually the same similar on a spectrogram when you zoom in on it around the same region length but this extra um, frequency content that's distinctly around 13 kilohertz i'm a little more mysterious now when i remove this you know when i remove everything below this and only keep the frequency range around 13 kilohertz, it sounds much more organically like cicadas to me, not synthetic anymore. Now I'm going to play you the recording, the original Havana recording from 60 Minutes with everything below 10 kilohertz completely removed from the frequency spectrum. Now listen to how much more organic or insect-like it sounds now. actually resembles a little more the more washed out cicada sound that I played for you earlier. It, it resembles that more than it did before. So let me play you that sound again in case you forgot. 
Now, what are just some initial thoughts that come to mind for me about what this means? Well, let's say this is real. Let's say that this is really when this guy started feeling these horrible symptoms, which he describes as basically having like a Q-tip, a sharp pencil poked in his ear and pressure. When he started hearing this sound effect, let's assume this is real, that he started hearing it. Why does it sound like this? What could be the purpose of it sounding like this? Is it possible that you're hearing a harmonic or artifact byproduct of almost like binaural beats done at an ultrasonic frequency? That you're hearing a modulation at a lower audible register of ultrasonic frequencies? Is that what you're actually hearing? Well, I think the only way we would really know that is if we were able to pick it up on a microphone that was able to record ultrasonic frequencies. Most microphones can't do that. So is there a way to actually record like microwave range frequencies like somehow in conjunction with audible audio like this? I don't know. But one thought that came to mind for me is that if this is some kind of sound weapon and let's say this sound weapon generated some kind of giveaway of where it was coming from somehow and it needed to be masked with a real sound effect or needed to resemble a sound effect that sounded like nature because by doing so you're actually covering something up to tell where this is coming from or to uncover something about this weapon a loud cicada style sound is a great way to probably mask something else it's loud enough, it's distracting enough, it's an annoying sound. You would tend to focus on it rather than something else if it was meant to cover up something else. What that could mean, I have no idea. Total theory that I've just pulled out of my butt. No fucking clue what that could actually mean. But I did put a inquiry out there, as I already said, to sound designers, electronic musicians, asking them specifically what they thought of the Havana syndrome sound as it was just played on 60 Minutes. What are their reactions to that sound? And I'll start with a submission by an electronic musician named Jesse Hamill from Winnipeg. Jesse had some absolutely fantastic commentary on this, and I don't want to spoil any of it because he actually recorded an audio clip for me of what he thought. So I'll just play it so you can hear it for yourself. And, uh, he went the extra mile too and actually recreated it from scratch. You know, what he thought he was hearing, he tried to recreate the sound. Check it out. This is a comment by Jesse Hamill, an electronic musician. You can find his Twitter handle at Jesse Hamill underscore and a Bandcamp page, jessehamill.bandcamp.com. Um, yeah, so this. Uh, Havana syndrome sound wave or whatever it's supposed to be uh, initially it just immediately sounded like cicadas to me or something of that sort but also um, this type of sound is very easily recreated just using FM synthesis uh, I, I made this in like a couple minutes And uh, yeah, it's a particularly nasty sound. It's right in the frequency that we're generally most sensitive to. But um, I mean, if a sound like that is enough to cause brain injury, then uh, 
myself and any any like noise artist probably should be having similar symptoms, but I don't think that's the case. Now I did follow up um, with Jesse and asked him uh, if he would be able to explain uh, how he made that sound. Now I have some, as an electronic musician myself, I have some indication of how he probably made that sound um, using FM synthesis. But in case you wanted to try recreating it yourself or messing around with FM synthesis to try to get a similar sound effect as the one they played on 60 Minutes, uh, check out his tutorial of it right here. And he actually has video of his tutorial, which I will share in the show notes. Um, He offered a video tutorial. I don't know if he's uploaded on YouTube. So I'll just try to link to the you know video file of that he has a tutorial. But here's the audio of his tutorial on how to Havana, Havana tutorial. Making your own Havana syndrome wave is very simple. You just need any FM synth. FM stands for frequency modulation. And the idea is that you take a carrier wave and you modulate the pitch or rather the phase by another, another oscillator. And it sounds like vibrato at low frequencies, but when you start to increase the speed, you get completely different timbres from it. So the idea with the Havana syndrome wave is you take a very high piercing frequency, and then you modulate that by a lower frequency. The result is that you have the unpleasant piercing high frequency, but it has some lower harmonics added, creating a sort of chirping tone. You can create more variance and overtones by adding more oscillators. And you can create beating patterns by having the oscillators be slightly out of tune. Brilliant. Um, that was that was great. Thank you so much, Jesse. Very easy to understand. Uh, the beginning part of it especially is great because if you've never been introduced to what FM synthesis is, uh, it's a great way to explain it. So that's pretty goddamn close. You know, other than an actual natural recording of a cicada, which I think almost sounds too rich and harmonic to sound exactly like that 60 Minutes recording... What Jesse just constructed, on the other hand, to me sounds a little bit closer um, to the real, the real thing, as you, I guess you would say, um, as they're presenting it on sixty minutes. Now let's um, let's get the opinion of uh, someone else, uh, an electronic musician who I am a, a particularly big fan of, a guy named Oswald Berthold who's part of Farmer's Manual, of course, who also goes under the solo moniker PXP. So I tagged him in a, in a request. What does he think about this Havana Syndrome sound? Uh, the PXP project is a very hard-to-describe project, but it has a lot of different synthesis methods at play. Oswald is, is very um, adept at synthesis, I know, because Farmer's Manual gets really far out there with DSP and custom-made software. But his initial reaction was, the sample is very short. 
And what are the circumstances of the recording? Can an artifact be excluded? Now, great question. I mean, as far as an artifact, I guess we could try using like isotope noise reduction plugins that know, you know, can find like wind noise, clothing shuffling sounds. Maybe I don't even know if the newer isotope noise reduction plugins have um, a thing to detect those, but if they did, uh, that would exclude those kinds of artifacts, I suppose. It wouldn't be, you know, perfect. How to exclude other kinds? I don't know. That's a great question. We don't even know the circumstances of the recording, so that's part of the issue. Now, he also says, re-Havana syndrome. He brings up the concept of onkyo improvisation, and he links to a Wikipedia page, onkyoke. I think that's how you pronounce it. The Ankyo music movement, or Ankyoke, is a form of free improvisation emerging from Japan in the late 1990s. Ankyo can be translated as sound noise echo. The offsite, a venue in Tokyo, is home to the Ankyo music movement, which is characterized by improvisation, minimalism, and quiet noise. Ankyo improvisation explores the fine-grained textural details of acoustic and electronic sound. Now, I wasn't previously familiar with this subgenre of Japanese experimental music, Japanese noise, but Japanese noise music in general has come up um, completely independently of Oswald's reaction from another mutual friend's reaction to the Havana Syndrome sound. Um, his reaction to it, his very first reaction, his name is Kush Aurora. He has a music project called Only Now. Um, I played some of his music before, his intros to Media Roots, really great stuff. His initial reaction to it was, it sounds like Aub. A-U-B-E, Aub, a Japanese noise artist who unfortunately is no longer with us. Uh, he was very active in the late 90s and early 2000s, who did... I don't know if he would be described as this genre that Oswald brought up, but he did music that is, you could describe it as minimalist Japanese noise music. And I do think there is an aesthetic here that is sort of reminiscent of that. And also, it reminds me of the time when I went to Japan to the Sega Museum. This was like right before 9-11. And they had an experimental device there that basically let you, you could stand in the pathway of what seemed like a laser beam where you put your ear in this place that it told you to, and you could perfectly hear a song playing, but only in that tiny spot where you pointed your ear. It seemed like an extremely directional, very long distant way to project sound. And ever since I saw that like demonstration at the Sega museum in Japan, um, in the early 2000s, I haven't seen or experienced any technology like that since. And it's been over 20 years since then, and there's got to be something else out there like that. But there's never, I've never seen like a product made on the market. And I remember being very impressed by it and thinking it was almost like magical. So there is sort of a weird resonance in my mind between like Japanese noise aesthetics, Japanese experimental music, and the possibility of this technology. So maybe that's why I'm inclined to believe that there's something real about this because I've experienced like an experimental 
projection sound beaming device before that was basically at like a tech demonstration. Oswald believes that there have been previously made recordings um, and those recordings have been published of supposed recordings of the Havana syndrome sound weapon. Uh, he said he couldn't follow up and actually find the recordings. I wasn't aware of that myself. He did link me to a video with the guy who led the NAS investigation into Havana syndrome who concluded that there was some kind of real auditory brain damage taking place. Um, an interview with David Relman. Oswald links me to that in our discussion. Oswald said that he thinks that the cover-up of weird sounds is worth pursuing. Um, I think he's might maybe slightly referring to that this could be used to mask something else. He says that ultrasound intermodulation distortion and crickets is quite interesting there. And he also just says flat out that microwave-induced auditory effects should be possible. As to the ultrasound effects, just think beat as in binaural beats. He links me to a, an article on Wikipedia that's about acoustic beats. How to create an artificial frequency perception from two higher frequency tones. So he's talking about modulating somehow. Like if you're able to do, let's say what Jesse was just talking about in his experiment. If you're able to modulate two ultrasonic imperceptible tones with each other but somehow they they create the perception of something lower register but it's actually something that's very high frequency generating the tones modulating each other now one interesting thing that came out of um this talk um and it's around 9:20 in a talk on youtube if you want to look it up it's called the mysteries of havana syndrome it was uh, released on november 16 2021 he talks about how there have been documented cases specifically in the military by people who operate radars all day long called the microwave auditory effect. And there's a whole Wikipedia article about this. The microwave auditory effect, also known as the microwave hearing effect or the Frey effect, consists of the human perception of audible clicks or even speech induced by pulsed or modulated radio frequencies. The communications are generated directly inside the human head without the need of any receiving electronic device. The effect was first reported by persons working in the vicinity of radar transponders, transponders during World War II. In 1961, the American neuroscientist Alan Frey studied this phenomenon and was the first to publish information on the nature of the microwave auditory effect. The cause is thought to be thermoelastic expansion of portions of the auditory apparatus, although competing theories explain the results of holographic interferometry tests differently. They also have a part of this article that says conspiracy theories. Numerous individuals suffering from auditory hallucinations and delusional disorders have claimed that government agencies use forms of mind-controlled technologies based on microwave signals to transmit sounds and thoughts into their heads as a form of electronic harassment. There are extensive online support networks and numerous websites maintained by people fearing mind control. Well, yeah, I mean, I've definitely uh, had people who are experiencing symptoms like that come, come at me and uh, be very adamant that that's, you know, they're being targeted. But here's what's weird. So this guy, Alan Frey, actually did experiments in the Journal of Applied 
Physiology in 1961, exposing people to pulsed microwave radiation from a distance of a few inches to hundreds of feet from the transmitter. It says on Wikipedia, in phrase tests, a repetition rate of 50 hertz was used with pulse width between 10 to 70 microseconds. The perceived loudness was found to be linked to the peak power density. At 1.245 gigahertz, the peak power density for perception was below 80 milliwatts a centimeter. According to Frey, the induced sounds were described as a buzz, clicking, hiss, or knocking, depending on several parameters. By changing transmitter parameters, Frey was able to induce the, quote, perception of severe buffeting of the head without such apparent vestibular symptoms as dizziness or nausea. Other transmitter parameters included a pins and needles sensation. Frey experimented with nerve-deaf subjects and speculated that the human detecting mechanism was in the cochlea, but at the time of the experiment, the results were inconclusive due to factors such as tinnitus. Wow, that is so fucking weird. Absolutely bizarre. So I apologize for actually not having the names of some of these people that I'm reading reactions from. Some of them are just Twitter people who contacted me. Unfortunately, I don't know your real name, Pumpkin of the Proletariat, but I will give people your Twitter handle, which is at ProlPumpkin. Hopefully you behave yourself better on Twitter than I do, ProlPumpkin, at ProlPumpkin. But this is what ProlPumpkin, Pumpkin of the Proletariat, had to say in reaction to my inquiry on Havana Syndrome sound reactions. Hi, Robbie. My initial reactions to the Havana Syndrome chirping sound is that it's too irregular to be electronically or mechanically generated. I'd be happy to do some additional analysis with a spectrograph if that's helpful. The other thing that sticks out to me about the interviews is how the symptoms described could be easily attributed to a number of other issues, especially stress. Electromagnetic pulse generators have been produced by hobbyists. If I'm not mistaken, 2600 Magazine did an article on this about 20 years ago and might be able to point you to someone who can tell you whether or not they are sound emitting. I mean, that's an interesting reaction. I'm not sure why Paul Pumpkin thinks that it couldn't be electronically or mechanically generated, that it's too irregular. On the spectrogram, it looks pretty regular to me, but... Yeah, uh, Pearl Pumpkin, look at it on your spectrogram and, and tell me what you think. Get back to me because maybe I'm not looking at it correctly. I'm not an expert on how to look at a spectrogram and decide if something's synthesized or not. Another Twitter user who I don't know the real name of, unfortunately, I should have asked. Sorry, I, d I don't know your real name. I'll give out your Twitter handle. Twitter handle at lowercase b, uppercase h, a, r, b, 12. They're a sound artist from Australia. And this was their uh, reaction. Hey, Robbie, here are my thoughts. My first reaction is that it's not any kind of ultrasound or ultrasonic frequency. A phone or portable recorder wouldn't be able to pick up and convert any frequency content above around 40 kilohertz, nor could my phone speaker replicate those frequencies. Sure, it could be a loud, annoying sound, but without hearing the sound in the original context, it's hard to determine how loud and therefore how much air pressure there is. If it is implied that it's some kind of ultrasonic weapon, individuals wouldn't notice these high-pitched frequencies because the average human ear can only hear up to around 20 kilohertz. Rather, they might feel some weird effects without knowing the cause. 
The sound reminds me of a bunch of crickets, like if you were in rural Japan. I don't know if crickets are a thing in Cuba. Well, they are a thing in Cuba, and I think you actually mean cicadas, not crickets specifically. Um, maybe a cicada is technically a type of cricket, but I always thought it was a different kind of insect. But uh, yeah, the cicadas in Japan sound an awful lot like this. Now, and just to answer your question or respond to what you said, it is implied that it's some kind of ultrasonic weapon. It must be. So yes, it's true that you would naturally think, well, they wouldn't hear it if it's ultrasonic. Well, what if it's ultrasonic, but it's modulating somehow, where it's creating a lower register sound that's being masked by something else? What if it's accidentally, like as a byproduct, it's creating a lower register sound like Oswald uh, was suggesting? PXP, member of uh, Farmer's Manual. Which, by the way, Farmer's Manual is a legendary experimental group one of my longtime favorites. Uh, highly recommend if you're into like weird electronic experimental music, um, especially like if you're into like IDM, the weirder end of IDM stuff like Autechre, Team Diobi. Definitely check out Farmer's Manual. Now, a Twitter user, listener of Media Roots Radio, um, who I'm actually working on a musical collaboration with right now, which is pretty fun. Really talented musician. Goes by the name... Friendly Neighborhood Demon on Twitter. Twitter handle at Compost Ghoul. Compost Ghoul. I had this to say about the um, Havana Syndrome sound. I'm not an academic of scientific expert in sound, really, so I don't know how valuable my contribution is. I record music, but I've never worked with analog synths, so it's hard to say anything with any authority. But I do think it would be an easy thing to synthesize, especially because we're not talking about synthesizing a voice. Cricket noise tinnitus seems like it would be easy to recreate with the right synth setup, then to field record poorly and release to journalists. Yes, I completely agree with that. Um, I mean, maybe the implication there is it's maybe staged. But I hear Aaron sounds like that coming off electronics all the time. The commercial HVAC units at my job has a sound like that when it kicks on. Some old TVs and monitors have a high-pitched whirring squeal that's just barely audible. And usually it's not audible, noticeable to everyone. One or two other people in the office can hear the HVAC sound. My wife can never hear the sound from our TV. Yeah, interesting comments there. I mean, I think it could be mechanically generated, so I'm not sure what gave um, the previous commenter the the certainty that it's it couldn't have been mechanically generated. Um, but... I mean, I still think it can be, or synthesized. I think either one are very likely. But so many strange things to unpack. I mean, you know, you heard them for yourselves. The idea that this is seemingly extremely directed, where people can leave the room and come back into the room and they start experiencing these effects again, or it follows them, like they'll escape, and it'll stop as soon as they leave the room. And then they'll take their family to a hotel, according to that one guy, and then uh, in the middle of the night at two in the morning, it'll start again in the hotel. And then as soon as they walk out the hotel room, it'll stop again. If this is some kind of targeted weapon like that, is it? could it be done from a satellite? I mean, is that even physically possible? How is this being done? It's being done from some people in a van? Sitting out in a car? Is it being done with a guy? How big is this device? A lot of questions. If this is happening on quote-unquote domestic soil... Why can't they detect this thing being used? They only hear about it after these people have gotten like brain damage from this shit. 
It's absolutely fascinating. But what if this is all some kind of psyop, similar to the UFO rollouts on mainstream media, to make America seem like they're the ultimate cuck? They have lost control of the global order. They're, they're being attacked left and right. There's UFOs outmaneuvering us, can just outmaneuver our most powerful jet planes. There's microwave weapons being pointed at our CIA agents, even people in the White House that's causing brain damage. I mean, at any time, it sounds like the president could just be assassinated now with a microwave weapon. That sounds like we're awfully vulnerable. So why are we admitting this? Why are we wanting to put this narrative out on television or just in the news in general? What purpose does it serve? I mean, if it does serve some kind of strategic purpose, it could be because it makes America seem like it's playing possum or not really interested in asserting its role, even though it really is. It maybe creates this believable atmosphere that America is pulling back, even though it really isn't, so that we could really surprise someone or bait other countries into making maneuvers that they might make because they think we're getting weaker. It's a real mindfuck, though, to think about that and take that line of thought further. But thank you for listening, everybody, to this newest episode of Media Roots Radio. I hope you enjoyed that sound designer, electronic musician um, reaction or series of reactions to the Havana Syndrome sound effect. And as always, if you'd like to become a Patreon subscriber to Media Roots Radio, and get access to our premium bonus episode, our once-every-month premium episode, which only our Patreon subscribers have access to, you need to go to patreon.com slash Radio, and for as little as $5 a month or per creation, you get immediate access to pretty much over 100 hours of bonus content instantly, including the long series that's on hiatus right now, the Freemasonic History of the United States, where there are eight episodes of it. It's about a 40-hour-long podcast, epically long. Also, the Smallpox series that we're doing now, which are mostly locked episodes only available to our subscribers. Check out the first episode of that, which is unlocked, and if you like it and you know want to hear the rest, consider uh, kicking down you know $5 per podcast or per month at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Take care, everybody.